This is SG2 Perspectives, a conversation with SG2 experts and industry thought leaders about the biggest trends in healthcare and what we expect that's going to mean for the future of healthcare delivery. We've been talking about how to integrate primary care and behavioral health. This 2.0 conversation comes into play when we start looking at our data. So Stephanie just shared that behavioral health comorbidities are a major cost of many of our member organizations. When you start to question how to address that is when you move into this integrated care 2.0. What does behavioral health look like in cardiovascular services, in a pain clinic, in surgery? We start to question these things. Welcome to SG2 Perspectives. I'm your host for today's episode, Jamie Sage. I'm joined by my guests, Caleb Bentley and Stephanie Snyder, who lead our research in trends and our forecasts for behavioral health services. I'm excited, as always, to talk about this topic. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. There's been a lot of news and acknowledgement of behavioral health, mental health, substance use disorder, especially over 2023. Over the past five years in particular, mental health and substance use disorder have become top of mind. We've even started to see the stigma associated with these diseases appear to be lessening. Stephanie, can you give us an overview of the current challenges that behavioral health providers are facing today in the context of diminishing stigma? When stigma started dropping, that was one of the few positive things that came out of the COVID-19 pandemic people started looking introspectively and saying, this isn't just me feeling sad or anxious or worried. This is everybody. And we started talking about the impact of the pandemic on a national level. More people are acknowledging that they have these feelings that they need to talk about. And sometimes they get to the level of they need to reach out for some professional help. We started talking about it more as a society. As a result of that, more people started reaching out for care. People are really reaching out because they know that they need help and it's less stigmatized now. As a result of that, we have this increased demand, which is the positive aspect. We have to really understand if we have enough workforce. Workforce is the most top of mind challenge in behavioral health, followed by payment. We're seeing some improvements there, but the workforce challenges are what Caleb and I are asked about on every single call. It's behavioral health in isolation, but it's also behavioral health in the context of primary care. We know that about 75% of primary care visits involve a behavioral health component. When primary care practitioners are talking with their patients, it's important that they have a plan or they have some kind of integrated system to deal with that. There's some really interesting data that came out recently that showed that the number of primary mental health nurse practitioners has increased by 134% over the last couple of years, but psychiatry numbers only increased by 15%. If we don't move past the idea of working just in psychiatry, we will never be able to meet the demand that we're seeing currently. It's the same old access challenge. It's just elevated to a new level because you've got so many more people seeking services, acknowledging that would benefit from help. What are some of those innovations? Maybe you can go into a little bit more detail about why that's such an exciting model that you're seeing come forward. Integrated care was something that I remember organizations working on in 2015. We called it pop health. It's the idea of leveraging different practitioners in a group care model. So rather than just one practitioner to one patient, we have a couple of different practitioners with different skill sets who are all able to come together with a patient at the center of the proverbial triangle. We're always working to collaborate for the sake of the patient, what's best for the patient. In doing so, we leverage our providers at the top of their license. 
patients. That allows each person to maximize their value in the clinic and to the patient. That's really exciting because so many organizations do that now. This is not a one-off. This is a, if you're not doing it, you're now behind. In the very off chance that I talk to somebody who says, we're not doing this, how do we do it? That's one of the things that I mentioned to them is you're a little bit behind the curve. And so let's help you catch up. Here are some resources that SG2 can provide and help you with. It's exciting to see it really starting to be more widely adopted and unfortunate that it had to come through a pandemic to get there. Going beyond integrated health, what are some of the other innovations our listeners may be interested in hearing about? Some of the things that I've been seeing a lot of lately are the impact of procedures with the SG2 forecast. Some of that procedural stuff is partial hospitalization programs, intensive outpatient programs, even TMS. ECT is still going strong. It's more in the outpatient space than inpatient, but it's still there. Esketamine has exploded. I talked to an organization a couple of weeks ago that we're doing a project for, and their practitioner there, to quote him, he said, this is nothing short of a miracle drug. So learning more about esketamine through his eyes as a practitioner was really helpful. And I look forward to sharing that information with some of our other organizations and client partners. Stephanie, when you brought up Miracle Drug, I instantly thought of GLP-1s and all the crazy things we're seeing across service lines with behavioral health, hopefully be no exception in the near future. When we're doing our research, we've come across a few studies, preclinical, that suggest that GLP-1 could have some use case for substance use disorder, particularly alcohol use disorder. Although those are early and they haven't really made their way to the clinical trial realm yet, we saw University of North Carolina just last week share that they're going to launch two clinical trials about the use of GLP-1 in alcohol use disorder, but also in nicotine use. So we're really excited to track those almost in real time with all of you listening to see what those implications might be and how this could start to affect the substance use disorder care families that we're tracking. That's really exciting to have some molecular targets, this GLP-1 receptor, as a way to intervene in the biological component of addiction. And that's something that, going back to the stigma, if we actually can show that there's a biological, genetic, and or molecular component to this disease, that also helps to address the stigma issues associated with addiction. Definitely. Stigma with substance use disorder is only branching out further when we look at the most extreme models around substance use disorder, like safe injection sites. Even those are starting to take huge traction in the United States. On Point, which is one of the first official safe injection sites in the country, had over 400 educational visits this last year. More than one a day, they're hosting people in their sites to show what their model looks like and how they're addressing substance use disorder head on. Super interesting stuff on both the pharmacological side, but also new models of care that might be old news in other parts of the world, but are super new here. And it's exciting to see how we're starting to tackle that. I love that because it's showing that we are focusing on the disease rather than the impact of what people have thought of as poor choices. By developing some new biological interventions, it's showing that this is a disease as much as mental health is or as much as a cardiovascular disease is, as opposed to that person just doesn't do what they're supposed to do or made some bad choices in their past and now they're suffering for it. I'm pleased to see that too. 
Stephanie, you talked about TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and the escatamine drugs. Now we've got potential interventions where we expect to see psychiatry go as a field. So rather than being the primary therapist, psychiatrists become interventionalists. They become the quarterback of the football team that is mental health. They're leading the charge and they're executing on the components, but there's others there that are absolutely required to get things to the end zone for the patient. That's all super true. One of the other really notable aspects of procedures like the ones that you mentioned are that they tend to pay pretty well as opposed to outpatient psychotherapy, which sometimes does okay and sometimes doesn't. The reason I bring that up is because it can help to balance out your behavioral health service line and make it either cash flow positive or at least break even. The downstream impact, though, of developing behavioral health in a preventative way is so significant. We share data from our clinical database that indicates the layering of a comorbid behavioral health diagnosis increases length of stay and readmissions and cost. And those things are really important, but they're overlooked. As a health system, we are not very good at being preventative. But if we're not being preventative, we're wasting a lot of money downstream. And this is one fairly easy way to be preventative in our healthcare continuum. And that's going to be more and more important as the population ages and we start seeing that bed space is more limited. As we look at using psychiatry more as interventionalists, we now take that more and more organizations are doing some form of integrated care, especially in primary care. What's the next level of care integration that you see coming to fruition? This is another exciting area that Stephanie and I get to talk with our members about almost weekly, if not every day. It's this idea we jokingly call integrated care 2.0. That 1.0, just Stephanie alluded to earlier, happened all the way back in 2015. We've been talking about how to integrate primary care and behavioral health. This 2.0 conversation comes into play when we start looking at our data. So Stephanie just shared that behavioral health comorbidities are a major cost of many of our member organizations. When you start to question how to address that is when you move into this integrated care 2.0. What does behavioral health look like in cardiovascular services, in a pain clinic, in surgery? We start to question these things. As we do so, we start to push ourselves in these new directions of integrated care. We have members already experimenting with this. There's a number of organizations we've talked to who have integrated social workers into pain clinics, for example, to help folks manage the psychosomatic aspect of pain. What about cancer? The number of folks with comorbid depression who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis is significant. And we're doing some more research in that realm, too. And so some organizations have layered in social workers and even some psychiatry or nurse practitioners to help cancer patients manage their depression and anxiety. Those all actually lead to better health outcomes, including for those with cancer. And those are important from a quality of life perspective for our patients, which is equally as important as cost. One of the other innovations we haven't talked about is what you're seeing in the virtual telemedicine space for behavioral health. When we look at virtual and behavioral health, it's really stuck since the pandemic. I think we all experienced this boom a couple years ago in digital services across service line. What's unique about behavioral health is we've hung on longer than other service lines. What we often see when we're talking with members is this hybrid approach. There's this option for patients to either continue their care virtually, come on site, and mix that up as they go through their course of treatment. Compared to other service lines, virtual visits have shown that they're here to stay in the behavioral health service line. 
During the pandemic, some organizations were reporting to us that they were leveraging virtual with 100% of their patients. A little bit after the pandemic, that dropped down to about 80%, which was still significantly higher than any other service line. Now, what we are forecasting across the decade is somewhere between 50 and 60% for the service line. It will ebb and flow. It does depend a lot on geography, in-person access within a certain region or within a certain health system. But the ultimate message here is that the use of virtual is not only expected from patients because behavioral health is a low-touch service and doesn't necessarily require an in-person visit, but providers like it too. So it's not just about patients, it's also about providers. This isn't something that's going to drop down in the next couple of years. We expect this to sustain over the next decade. So that sustainability also helps with some of the access issues, especially in more rural parts of the country where patients might not have access in their local market. In the state of California, where I live, the statement is always only about half of the counties in the state actually have a mental health provider in their county. California is not unique in that aspect. That virtual component is critical to creating access and it becomes another of those different models of care. And it doesn't have to be a psychiatrist again or even a psychologist. There's data that says that 96% of counties in the U.S. face a shortage of mental health prescribers. That combined with the impact of virtual, we have some options here. We have the impact of virtual, which means that health systems don't need to do all of this themselves. We've said this before, but it bears repeating because there are a lot of national providers out there, BetterHelp, Talkspace, Concert Health. There's a whole bunch who can be a support to health systems so that they don't have to fill all of that demand on their own. They can contract out and start to bring in some national partners where it makes sense. Absolutely. So we've talked about a lot of innovations here today. I want to think about how health systems actually start to move forward with innovation and behavioral health. And so when you're getting on the phone with all these clients that you're talking to, what's your advice on how to move forward into this more innovative space and to continue to redesign how they're delivering care and creating access? The integration of behavioral health is becoming more widespread. It's not just in behavioral health. It's not just in primary care. So one of the things that we frequently mention is to think of behavioral health not as a place, but as a service. So it's not in a clinic. It's not, I mean, it can be in a clinic, but it's not always in a clinic. It's not down the hall in the building. It's something that should be integrated across any type of medical service. And when you think of behavioral health across your system of care, that will start to fulfill some of the demands that you're seeing within your system, and it'll start to bring down some of those comorbid patients that you'll end up seeing in the med surge unit later on. Most of what we shared today are through the great things that we've learned through our members. Our number one piece of advice is to be bold with your behavioral health strategy. We're at a point in time where the barrier of stigma is low. The workforce is a problem that needs to be solved. Now's the time to put the pedal to the metal. Really test those strategies and be bold because this is a space that's going to need some innovation. But there are solutions. It's not a hopeless field by any stretch of the imagination. There are definitely innovations out there that can help. Well, I think those are some great final thoughts. Caleb and Stephanie, thank you for being my guests today and sharing an update on all things behavioral health. It's an important topic, and I really hope that our listeners will reach out if they are needing some help in this space, or honestly, if they've got new care delivery stories, new care innovations that they're experimenting with. Part of what we enjoy doing is helping to disseminate those learnings across the country. 
reach out to Stephanie and Caleb if you've got anything behavioral health you'd like to talk about. Thank you all to our listeners. Really appreciate your time again today and look forward to seeing you again on our next SG2 Perspectives. Thanks so much for listening to SG2 Perspectives. As always, I really value your feedback, input, comments, or ideas for episodes, and you can reach us at sg2perspectives at sg2.com. Additionally, I recommend that you check out some of the other Vizient podcasts, which cover a range of clinical and operational areas. Those can all be found at vizientinc.com backslash podcasts. Mm-hmm.